How many love Mondays? I know the world is not too excited about Mondays, but we at SUM, we at the Chicago cohort, we love our Mondays, don't we? Yes, we do. Amen. Best day of the week after Sunday. So we're going to welcome up our pastor and visionary leader, Joe Wairostek. Let's give it up for Pastor Jerry, who did an amazing job last week. How many enjoyed that message on hunger and finding satisfaction in life? You left your Bible up here, your sword, so I got it there for you. I enjoyed listening to it. Man, Jared is such a blessing to have in the house. We never want to take him for granted. I just want to find more things for him to do, more people to influence more lives to change by the gospel that has changed his life. Let's go to Romans chapter 9. It is hard to read a passage like Romans chapter 9 without me having a debate in my head. Have you already been influenced that much by what the Calvinists have to say? If you don't, and you can read Romans 9 freely, God bless you. I wish I had that clarity of mind to never have to argue with myself in my head. And, And the reason is, is because Calvinism, just to give you a little history of this, Calvinism was not around in the early church. It really started out of Gnosticism morphing into Manchaeanism and Augustine around the 4th century coming out of Manchaeanism, which was deterministic, uh, and kind of adding that into the Bible. And then it kind of disappeared for a little while. And then during the Reformation, while they were breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church and really focusing on the solas, they they felt that Rome had added uh, works to to their salvation because uh, they didn't understand God's sovereignty. And so they went back to Augustine and thought, hey, if we can understand sovereignty and God's election in this way, then we can really understand the solas better. But it's wrong to think of all the reformers as being Calvinistic in that sense. They weren't. Calvin came after Luther. Luther was the, the head reformer. And then Calvin came and kind of solidified it. And one of his followers, Beza, made it what it was. And then Arminius started to argue backwards with it, and so did some Roman Catholics like uh, Molinus, and and so we borrow a little bit from everywhere. We love what the Calvinists had to say about certain things. We love what Arminius had to say, and we love what some of the Roman Catholics said back against the Calvinists. We we receive some of those teachings, just like we receive Thomas Aquinas and other things that, that, that Roman Catholics have done. Not everything they say is wrong, okay? And so it kind of became this big mess over soteriology. Soteriology is a big word for the study of soteriology. Uh, the, the of soterias, which is salvation. Uh, Jared, will you get the board of markers for me, please? And so you have the Reformation going from the 15, 1600s and onward, and then you got the Wesleys that come up. A little bit before that, you have some, some radical preachers that we could make some time on, like the um, those who followed Count Zinzendorf, I believe, and the Movarians. Uh, that, that could be a good conversation. But just going to the Wesleys, Wesley was very uh, non-Calvinistic. He was very Arminian, and he influenced the American Bible Belt, okay? And so uh, Calvinism has always been a small form of Christianity. Uh, some of the popular Calvinists in the time of, of the founding of America during that same time of kind of Wesleyanism would be like um, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield. Now, George Whitfield was a peer with the Wesleys, but he always... Uh, admired John Wesley for what he taught and believed. Uh, They argued a lot. John Wesley was very sassy towards the Calvinists, very much like my personality. Uh, He basically said in Calvinism, God is worse than the devil because the devil can't save them, so he just wants them to go to hell, but God can save them and sends them to hell. So he was very, very mean to them in some ways. Um, 
And when it came to passages like this, Wesley would say, whatever it means, it doesn't mean what they say it means, you know. So you could, you could pick any other option other than their option. And uh, Whitfield was still kind to him and said, my, my preaching has led to converts who have become like a rope of sand. So he, he couldn't really hold on to them anymore because he was not seeing a lot of fruit. But Wesley, because of discipleship, will have heaven filled with, with his students that would follow them in the Methodist revivals. So he was very complimentary towards them. And then um, you get towards more like Charles Finney and then Pentecostalism, we have always been more non-Calvinistic. And that doesn't mean we don't believe in things like predestination and election. We just look at it a little bit differently. Now, all of us are going to have a system or a way of looking at the... Um, this is a little bit crooked here. Can you fix that for me, please? A system or a way of looking at passages like this. So don't be blinded by your tradition. Everybody come with an open mind to let the Scripture speak for itself. Uh, thank you. And so it's is, is much better, much better. Yep. So if you look at it through Calvinism, then you're going to see Romans 9's doing your Calvinism thing. If you look at it through non-Calvinism, you're going to see it that way. But really, what does the Scripture say? What does the Scripture say? And so Leighton Flowers does this one thing where he has, uh, you know, this image here. And it's like, which, what is it? Is it a duck or is it a rabbit? Uh, it's nothing, Pastor Joe. It's an ugly thing. Uh, let's, let's try to round this head off a little bit more, right? Let's try to round that. Which one is it? Is, is, it, is it a duck or is it a rabbit? Which one is it? Who, what do you see? What's the first thing you see when you look at that, Lawrence? So you see a rabbit, right? You see the eyes and the two ears. Does anybody see a duck quacking up like that? Yeah, you see the duck, its eyes right there, it's stretching its neck. Maybe, maybe I can make the neck a little bit better there. So what do you see, a duck or do you see a rabbit? And so the idea is what do you see when you look at these passages? Now, we are not uh, postmodernists, and so we don't believe that whatever is true for you is true and that there is no absolute truth. We believe that the authors of the Scripture meant something by this. So we just don't read Romans chapter 9 and let our feels interpret the Scripture and go, well, this is what I feel. It's a, well, what is it? What does it feel like to you? What do you feel when you read this? No, we're not being led by our feels. We're being led by the Spirit. Now, as a non-Calvinist, what that simply means is, I believe God in his sovereignty, means he's king over all, he gave man a choice. Calvinism says God makes the choice. It is really that simple. And so when you follow everything out from there in the study of soteriology, you see how they divide, okay? And so they have an acronym called TULIP. We have one called ROSES. They have TULIP. We have ROSES, you know, plural. And you can go to evangelicalarminians.org to read more about, you know, beliefs that we have. You can listen to Soteriology 101 with, with uh, Leighton Flowers. You can also listen to the Trinity Broadcast with uh, Jonathan Pritchett and, and Braxton Hunter and some others. And then when it comes to Calvinism, John Piper, Matt Chandler, uh, Paul Washer, who are you naming? Jo John MacArthur, all of that. Now, we have... 
the cool-headed ones have all come to an agreement. We all love Jesus and we're Christians, okay? So if you see James White and Dr. Michael Brown going back and forth, Brown being like us and White being the Calvinist, you see great friendships. We do not want to divide over this. We want to stand true with our brothers. And, and let me just say something here as a little caveat that might bless some of you guys practically. We actually share a lot more with them when it comes to the holiness codes of the Bible and the radical nature of the gospel than even we do with a lot of modern even evangelical Arminians and Pentecostals because they have become very watered down. And so we agree with them. We're not into a lot of what our, our people are into right now. And I was talking to Jared about this. And, you know, you look at their conferences and how just, just deep they are. You look at Vody Balcom, you know. Like if you were to compare a Vody Balcom to a T.D. Jakes, I mean, I would almost be rude in trying to say how I would see that. Um, <sighs> I got words in my mouth I want to say, but the Holy Spirit is putting that fence down. It's like, no. But just listen to a T.D. Jake sermon, listen to a Vaudi Bakum sermon, okay? Those are two African-American leaders with totally two different ways of doing it. Listen to a Paul Washer sermon or listen to an Andy Stanley Joel Osteen sermon, right? I mean, so there's your Anglo version of that, right? So l l listen to, you know, and I, I could think of some Latino Calvinists and some non-Latino, but I just don't want to keep going on the culture thing. I think you get my point. Like, listen to their sermons, and you will literally be going, I'm with those guys. Like, my pastor preaches like those guys. We preach on the streets like those guys. We go verse by verse and deep into the scripture like those guys. We practice disfellowship. We practice an eldership like those guys. Um, but I still believe this is true Pentecostalism. I, I don't believe I'm any different than Pentecostals in that way. And by the way, you can be a Calvinist Pentecostal. It's a bit of a weird thing, but it's starting to happen a little bit more here and there. Uh, but it's always been a small minority, by the way. And generally, you always hear more coming from Calvinism than you do from those going into Calvinism. There was a time when they called it the Calvinist resurgence, which was like the first time it seemed like the tide was going more towards their direction. But just as you thought it was a, a resurgence, now you start hearing all the stories of everybody leaving out again. So it was like trendy. And now through Leighton Flowers, who was a former Calvinist, and he kind of draws in all those former Calvinists. Now they're starting to all flow out. And guys have wrote books like Calvinist dark basement or something where the basement of Calvinism I think is where he talks about when I was a Calvinist I liked that God chose me and he died for me and there's nothing I could do to lose my first salvation but I never thought about the reprobate and then he started thinking about the reprobate that means Jesus didn't die for him the blood did, wasn't shed for him that, that he was doomed from the womb and all of those kinds of things and he began to see like that's not the God of the Bible you know if you want a little bit of Jewish history on that, they don't have anything that resembles Calvinism. If you study Jewish history, the Jewish people, as Michael Brown will continually prove over and over again from their scriptures, totally believed in choice, uh, totally believed that God was sovereign and in control, but he gave us a choice. And so once again, if you were to take those two paths and see where they lead, and there is sometimes like a third option, a middle option, we won't get into that. Sometimes you'll hear about like a four-point Calvinist instead of a five, and sometimes you'll hear of a three-point Calvinist and all of these different kinds of ways of looking at Arminianism and there's different views like Wesleyanism because we're more Wesleyan than we are strictly Jacob Arminius because we do believe in things like Christian perfection. And so uh, there's a lot of flavors of ice cream you can get in soteriology. But this two major, these two major roads where they split is over that first thing that I like to summarize is does God give man a choice in salvation or does man uh, does God make the choice? So does God choose me alone to be saved? Or does God choose me and then now I have to choose him? 
Now, sometimes they'll try to say to us that we don't believe that uh, God is making the choice, that he kind of is wringing his hands waiting for us to make the choice. We are very clear that God has to initiate. God has to make the choice to save. So a way of saying it would be like this. If the president makes a choice to call me, and then now I have a choice to answer the call, me answering the call, making that choice, never earned the president's call. Okay, do you guys get that? I got to look at eyes. Did you get that? Me answering the call of the president. I cannot say, it was my choice to answer the call, therefore I'm responsible for the call. Okay, so imagine the call being salvation. They think we're saying we're calling the president. That God does not choose, we choose, and now I dial him up. No, no, no. We're saying God still chooses. God chooses to call me, but he gives me a choice to answer. And so we will give another example, like when the uh, person is drowning and the helicopter is coming. Is the person floating dead, passed out, or just say passed out, and the person, uh, the um, the Coast Guard picks them up and takes them on the helicopter without any choice, or is the person there and able to make a choice to go with them or not? Now, if they make the choice to go with them, as we believe, can they now take credit for saving themselves based on their choice to go with the rescue operator? No, because they weren't the one being uh, doing the rescue, being lowered down. They weren't the one flying the helicopter. They only did one thing, made that choice. Now, once again... There's going to be two different ways of looking at the nature of man, which comes from other passages. So they'll say, we were dead in sin. We were dead like Lazarus. We could not be making a choice of the salvation. But we say dead doesn't mean you can't make choices because dead men live according to the Bible, making choices all day long. And he even says, wake up, O sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There's a choice to even get up. And then dead is not in a sense like Lazarus where you have to wait for the call and be drawn out of your grave. Dead is like the prodigal son who was dead in his sin, dead to the father, doing all those things. And when he came home, by his choice, when he came to his senses, the father said, my son who was once dead is now alive. So they want to make us out to be dead in the sense we can't make a choice. And then they'll try to use Romans chapter 3 and say that none are good, no, not one. And they'll try to use Romans 8 as we've read through and say, if you're dead in your sin, how can you set your mind on the things of the spirit? Because if you're in the mind of the flesh, you can never please God. And so we teach them that it's not us saving ourselves. It's not us turning on a switch. It's not us making that decision in our own effort. It's the grace of God preparing a way for the choice. God initiates the, the, the choice to save us by him coming to us, by him reaching out to us, by creation, conscience, and the scripture. Can I hear an amen to that? And then we get to make a choice how we respond. And Romans chapter 10 is going to talk about that, that we are sending out preachers so that they can hear the word and make that choice. And then in Romans chapter 11, Jews have not made that choice now, so they're cut off. We have, as Gentiles, have made that choice. We're engrafted in. But if we as Gentiles stop doing that choice, stop walking in faith, we're cut off. And then if they stop living in disobedience, come into faith, they're brought in. Does everybody get that? That's the story there. And that's why we said in Romans 5, you know, he said the just shall live by faith. It, like Abraham, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. How does he get the check mark credit? Is it by works? No, it is by faith. So when they try to say we can't do one good thing, we can't do one good thing, we, ad we admit that. But can God do a good thing and give us a choice to have faith? Yes, God can do that. And I don't get to say faith is now my work. 
Though it's credited to me as righteousness, it's never a work. And that's the thing they always want to twist around is Paul's meaning of what faith is. Because they'll say, well, are you saved by works or are you saved by grace? And then we'll say, we're saved by grace. Okay, then why is your neighbor not saved? And then you'll say, because your na- my neighbor hasn't believed. Okay, so what did you do different than your neighbor? Well, I believed. Okay, is that a work? Well, if that's a work, you did one work differently than your neighbor. Your neighbor didn't do that work. That's why they're not saved. You did that work. That's why you're saved. See, you're not saved by grace. You don't really believe that. You, save your, you believe you're saved by 99.999% grace, but there's .0001% of you that saves yourself because of that choice. Do you see how they twist it around? And we go right back to the scriptures, and I'll show you even today in Romans 9, that is not how Paul sees faith. He does not see you making a choice to trust God as a work. So we'll say to them, what is the difference between my neighbor and I? I chose to have faith. That is the difference. But you can't call to work, not biblically. A work, according to the Bible, is a work of the law. And that's why Romans 3 says everyone is condemned under the law. No one is saved by the law. And we're saying we're not that way. I'm not saved by a work of the law. Faith is not a work of the law. And we'll get into that to Romans chapter 9. Now, to, to kind of put it all together so that you can see it, Faith is a gift of God. We agree with them with that. That faith is initiated by God, as we'll see in Romans 10, by the word of God. But God gives us a choice to receive faith or not to receive faith. Where for them, they have to say it's only God's choice. So for them, why are you saved and your neighbor's not saved? Because God chose to save you and to damn them, and they don't even have their sins paid for on the cross. It's limited atonement. T for total depravity, which we agree with them on, tulip. U from un, uh, undeserved, unmerited, no, 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 um, un, oh my gosh. T, total depravity, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, P, perseverance of the saints, U is, oh my gosh, why does that one always skip my mind? Why can't I just think of it right now? Unconditional election, thank you. Baptists and Arminians uh, and Pentecostals can argue over the T and the P. Some Baptists believe in the P, that you're saved, once saved, always saved. And we believe in the T, total depravity. It's the Uli in the middle, U-L-I, that we all non-Calvinists disagree with. That's why even though Leighton Flowers believes in the P, that every, you know, once you're saved, you're always saved. And, uh, and he doesn't agree with the T, which is another discussion of how they see original sin. But we agree with the T, but not with the P, but we both side together against the Calvinists because it's the Uli in the middle, the undeserved, um, unconditional election, limited atonement, and irresistible grace that makes a Calvinist really what a Calvinist is. And so we are non-Calvinistic in nature. And so when they say that it's God's choice to save you and damn that person, they call that election, that is not found in the Scripture. The scripture is not saying that it's based on God's choice, who he saves and who he damns. When we read today Romans chapter 9, they're going to read the duck into this thing, and the duck has nothing to do with it. It is a rabbit. All Romans chapter 9 is now going to do is tell the Jewish people why Gentiles are getting saved. And in the midst of that, he's going to explain to them that now Jew and Gentile can both be saved the same way, 
and rejected by God the same way. And ultimately, he will use both for his glory, the ones who reject him and the ones who accept him. And then Paul will go on in Romans 10 to say, but ultimately, there still is a plan for Israel. And that is part of the bigger plan of God. But we're getting grafted in in 11. Israel will be saved, so forth. And so we don't want to lose the purpose of Israel in this discussion. It's actually the main reason of the discussion and how Gentiles are being saved. Let's go there. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Are you ready? 20-minute introduction. Not too bad. (laughs) I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Don't you love that the Messiah is God over all? That is a scripture of the divinity of Jesus. Now, what do you think Paul's going to talk about for the next few verses if this is his introduction and shifting from practical living in Romans 7 and 8 as a slave of Christ, born of the Spirit, mindset on Jesus? What do you think he's going to talk about here now? He's going to talk about Israel and their plan, God's plan for them in the big picture. That's all he's going to do right now. Let's not lose focus of that. That's why I would love to only debate a Calvinism on the book of Romans and the scriptures the book of Romans brings up. Just does the book of Romans teach Calvinism or non-Calvinism? We would say Wesleyanism. It is clear that this is not going to teach what they think it does. And I'm going to try to play the devil's advocate as best as I can. But at the same time, I do just want to teach the passage to you. Amen? Because this was unknown to Paul at that time. His interlocutor or the person he's arguing with and answering questions in the passage is not a Calvinist, but a religious, hard-hearted Jew that feels left out of the gospel party. Uh, excuse me, not, uh, they would say, the Calvinists, that this is a person arguing free will and so forth. That is not the interlocutor. It's somebody like us. The person is a hard-hearted Jew that's left out of the gospel party. Sorry. Let's go on now. It is not as though God's word had failed. Well, why would that be even come up right now? Because all of Israel now is not getting saved. They're actually the number one persecutors of the church. That's why Paul is going to go to Rome and get beheaded because of them. Those are who are stoning the Christians. Before the destruction of the temple, the number one persecutors were not Romans. They were Jewish people. So he's explaining if they had all of these good things given to them, why does it look like now it failed them? They're not following the Messiah. What went wrong here, in other words? Now Paul explains. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. He's going to now say, like, true lineage of Israel is not just the blood of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but what? The faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's a true Israelite. Verse 7. Nor because they are his descendants Are they all Abraham's children? On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. 
In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Wasn't Ishmael an offspring of Abraham? So he's using that as an argument. He's saying, if you're just right with God because you're a descendant of Abraham, shouldn't have Ishmael been right with God? But God did not use Ishmael to bring about the promises. It was Isaac. And that is now the illustration he is giving among the Jewish people today. There are some of you who are like Ishmael, and there are some of you who are like Isaac. What's the difference? Whether or not you have faith or you're trying to achieve salvation by works. That is the same point he uses of the two mountains in Galatians. Don't miss it. Amen? It says, for this... Uh, excuse me, for this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. So let's just understand sovereignty right here. And I got the references, okay? You can see in Genesis 21, 12, about the promise of the offspring through Isaac, and Genesis 18, 10 of the returning. I won't mention these too much unless we, we need to, but they're, they're the, the references of the quotes. Let's just look at sovereignty right now. Does God choosing Isaac over Ishmael have anything to do with either one of their salvations? No, so he's not arguing with a free will guy. He's not arguing with us. Who is he arguing with? A Jewish person that thinks that salvation comes through racial identity, and he is now saying salvation comes through faith, spiritual identity. That's why he's saying even Abraham's son, Ishmael, wasn't a promised child according to what God had said because it wasn't Isaac. Now, is that God's sovereign choice? Yes. Do we believe God sovereignly chooses nations? Yeah. Do we believe God sovereignly chose when you would be born, what gender you would be? what nation you would be a part of, what language you would speak. So we're not saying because God sovereignly lets us make a choice in salvation called faith, we're not saying that we now are the arbiters of our own destiny, that we control everything with our free will. We're simply saying free will, or what as Arminius and others like to say, freed will, that our will has been freed from total depravity by the grace of God to make a choice, is the choice of God. So is God powerful enough to let us make choices in salvation? Yes. Does he have to play chess against himself? Because ultimately, that's all he's doing if he's the only one making choices in the universe. He's ultimately uh, saving his own damnation. He's ultimately helping the ones he has determined to hurt. So it's like God playing chess against himself. But can God play chess against other free will agents and still win? Yeah, so he can create free will agents and still be sovereign enough, powerful enough to win. And is anybody going to heaven on a surprise? Is anybody going to show up there and Jesus is like, I don't know how you got there. There's not an extra seat for you. No. So those he foresees, he predestines, as we learned in the previous chapter. And that is how God operates in justice. That those who are damned are because their choice was not to be with him. And though he foreknew it, it doesn't take away his justice and it doesn't take away their responsibility. Just because God knew they would be damned doesn't mean they didn't make an act actual choice and time, and that he didn't truly want and desire to save them, as other scriptures say. Let's keep going. 
It says, not only that, verse 10, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. He's just going to say the example again. I mean, he's literally just going, let me tell you another example. Okay, so God chose Isaac over Ishmael. Now he's going to say God chose Jacob over Esau. Anything to do with their salvation here? No, just talking about nations. Now watch this. Verse 9, uh, verse 10. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So did one of them make a choice to become God's chosen instrument? No. Did God look at their works and say, because you'll do better works, I'm going to now choose you? No. At some point, you have twins. God has to make a choice. Who is going to be the one I use? He uses Jacob. He uses Jacob based on his sovereign choice. Can I argue with that? No. I mean, I can come up with a zillion examples like that. It's God's sovereign choice that I'm an American and not a Vietnamese person. Did I have anything to do with that? Were there any works that I did in, in God's mind and his foreknowledge that got me to become an American? No, I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I get the privilege of being an American, just like Jacob got the privilege of being God's chosen person. But now watch verse 13. He now quotes from Malachi 1, 2 through 3, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now you might see why the Calvinists will make a jump to personal salvation. Oh, it's not just about God choosing nations like us being an American or God choosing Jacob to be the, the founder of the nation of the 12 tribes of Israel and so forth. He's actually saying now he hates that person and he loves this person. But hold on. Did Jesus speak that to them in Genesis? I hate you, Esau. You're going to hell. I love you, Jacob. No. Why is that said in the last book of the Bible, after these guys had already lived and died, why is it now said in correlation to this? Did it get personal, or is it actually still talking about nations? Let's go to Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. How does the prophet use that passage and wouldn't Paul be a good student of Scripture? Wouldn't he know why he was using that Scripture? Look at this, Malachi 1-2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you asked, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to desert jackals. So Esau represents a country. Did that ever happen while Esau was alive? No, Esau was actually blessed during his lifetime. He probably is in heaven. It looked like he lived a righteous life. What is it saying? Verse 4, Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. So have we left 
the countries and the examples of God choosing the nation of Israel over other nations to make it personal salvation? Or are we still talking about God choosing nations and punishing nations? Isn't that what we're at right here? Esau didn't have any of this happen to him. Why did his descendants have that happen to him, to them? Because over time, they became disobedient and turned their back on Israel. Now understand this. What must you say if you're a Calvinist? God hated this guy named Esau from the very beginning, turned him against God, against his own ways, then cursed him, cursed his land, and did it all because he wanted to. And now all of these descendants, all of these people are in hell, and the only reason is, is because God did not love him like he loved this guy named Jacob. Does that sound like the story of Genesis? Does that sound like the story anywhere in the Bible that God is just randomly in his own sovereignty picking and choosing who is saved and who is damned and just going after it like that? Of course not. The quote in Malachi is helping us to understand how God chose Israel. That's all it is. That's all it is. We haven't gotten to even anything to do with personal salvation. Let's go back to our notes. Verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. So is God unjust in choosing Israel and blessing Israel when they did the right thing and still punishing them when they did the wrong thing? Yes, he's just. Is he unjust? No. Is he unjust in choosing Jacob over Esau and then as Esau over time turned more wicked, he cursed them? Is he unjust for that? No, but wouldn't he be unjust? If he simply out of his own sovereignty just started damning to hell people for no reason other than his own reason? Okay. Now some people think that's going to be an argument that's going to come up in a little bit later with the lumps of clay. But we'll get to that. Let's keep going. Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, how did God tell his people who he chose how he would bless and curse them? Let's go to Deuteronomy individually for salvific purposes that, yes, would affect a nation, but for themselves personally. How did he give them the blessings and curses? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Just, you know, just to give an example. Of course, I wouldn't use this in a debate because I would only stick with the passages there. But I want us to go to Deuteronomy chapter 28. And, of course, a paper Bible, it's hard to get passages right. Look at verse 28, verse 1. Chapter 28, verse 1, rather. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all of his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come on you and will accompany you uh, if you obey the Lord your God. So how did God say he was going to give mercy individually in regards to moral actions salvation, and bless a nation. He said he would do it by their obedience. How was he going to curse them? Verse 15 of that same chapter. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. So anything that's going to have to do 
with blessings and curses in regards to people's salvation and the blessing of God over their nation is not going to be determined on God's sovereign choice alone, but rather on God's sovereign choice to give people a choice to obey or disobey. Do you get that? So if you found yourself in Israel cursed, why are you cursed? Is it because God didn't want to bless you? No, it's because you disobeyed God. If you found that your nation was cursed, why why is your nation cursed? Is it because God sovereignly chose to curse you? No, it's because God sovereignly gave you a choice and you have made the right one. That's why you're blessed. You made the wrong one. That's why you're cursed. Is everybody tracking with me? Think about this. Think about this. The nation of Israel was entirely blessed during David's time, but he comes under a personal curse, loses his child. Was that God's sovereign choice alone, or was that God's sovereign choice to give him a choice, and now he's reaping the consequence of curse of losing his child? Right? It's the second one. Now, the nation of Israel, during the time of Jeremiah, is going into exile. Jeremiah is righteous. He's doing the right thing. But why is his, and he's going to heaven, but why is his nation under moral judgment? Is it because God sovereignly chosen his own will to curse them and to send them into exile? Or is it because, number two, that's God's sovereign choice to give them a choice and they've been making the wrong choices? So how do people and nations get blessed? They get blessed with God's choice when they make the right choice. Everybody get that? Now let's go back to Romans. God says, I'll have mercy on who I'll have mercy and compassion on who I'll have compassion. Now verse 16 says, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And somebody might say, well, see, that just disproves you, Joe. You just showed us that blessings and curse came by our efforts when God said it doesn't come by our efforts. But what did I say before that? This has nothing to do with individual salvation. Otherwise, this passage would be contradicting Deuteronomy. Did Deuteronomy say the blessings have nothing to do with what you're going to do? Is that what Deuteronomy 28 said? Come on, y'all got to pay attention. I know I confuse myself when I give a lot of ultimatums, right? Like either or, either or. I get confused myself. But please track with me. Track with me. Verse 16. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort. Okay, look at that phrase. It does not depend on human desire or effort. We've got to determine what is the it. Is the it salvation and personal blessings and curses, if it is the it and your salvation or your blessings and curses have nothing to do with your human desire or effort, Deuteronomy chapter 28 contradicts the entire passage here. Because the entire point of Deuteronomy 28 is if you obey, you get this. If you disobey, you get this. Isn't that going to require human effort for you to obey? Isn't it going to require you to desire to want to do those things? Absolutely. So does that it have anything to do with salvation and blessings and curses? Is he arguing, is Paul arguing with a guy like me who believes human effort and desire is a part of what God uses to give us a choice? I have to make the effort. I have to make a choice. It's not a work of the law, but it's a choice. It's a desire to want to love God. Are you listening? No, that it has nothing to do with that, that what we're talking about. What is the it? 
the choice of God for Israel and the plan that he has for all the nations from Israel to be engrafted in. That's why he's going to end very clearly in 11. Israel is still God's chosen people, so we can't get too upset with them. But now he's brought in the Gentiles. That's his choice. And now they get engrafted in by faith. That's all the it is here because now he brings up Pharaoh. Now somebody might say, well, Pharaoh's an individual. Let's look at how he uses Pharaoh as an example. Does he use Pharaoh as an example of, 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 um, hu- uh, of I keep saying human, of personal salvation? Or does Pharaoh still represent national blessing, God's choice, Jacob over Esau, Isaac over Ishmael? Let's read about Pharaoh here. Verse 17. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now Pharaoh, was Pharaoh, let's just take the Calvinist uh, interpretation, was Pharaoh this guy doomed from the womb that he now hardens to be this wicked guy? And doesn't have a plan of salvation for him, doesn't give a rip about him, is simply making him an instrument of total destruction. And this is all about his salvation and him going to hell. If that were true as a Calvinist, why does God have to harden him? If we're already dead like Lazarus, why do we need to be more hardened? If we're already the puppets of God, why does God have to say he's pulling strings now with Pharaoh? He's pulling strings with everybody. Pharaoh, Nimrod, every priest of the Amalekites, right? I mean, everybody's God's puppet in that sense. I mean, nobody gets to make a choice, so who cares? I mean, it's almost redundant to put blindfold on a blind man. Are you listening to me? But could God be using this in the context of the story, when you read it, and Michael Brown, I believe, drilled down very well, James White, in his debate on this point, that what God is doing is showing that the leader of a wicked nation had rejected God so much that then God made his choice to harden him and not let him get saved after a certain point. Would he be an example of what it's like when people who stand against God's plans get Put in judgment. The nation of Israel was under this judgment, uh, under slavery of Pharaoh for so long that God said, I'm going to punish the whole nation. And here Pharaoh is the leader of that nation, and he's using him as an example. Paul is here now because God used him as an example to show, this is what I'll do to anybody who keeps resisting me. I'll just let you get whatever you want. And so the Hebrew word there that says about him being hardened has to do with being baked in. And so it's like Pharaoh said, I want to make my cake of my heart really dark and brown. And then God says, if that's what you want, I'm just going to turn it up all the way and let you burn that thing until there's nothing good left. That is what a reprobate is according to the Old Testament. But why is he bringing up the individual? Because the individual represented the nation that held back the people of Israel. Because was it just Pharaoh's child that was killed? No, it was all of the firstborn. Was it just Pharaoh's family that suffered? No, it was all of the nation. And so why is God justly condemning this whole, uh, this whole Egyptian nation based on this one guy? Because the one guy represents the nation. It's like he was their judgment. 
He was their judgment because they had become so content and mistreating God's people. God said, now I'm going to let this guy decide for you how it's going to be for everybody. And I'm going to let him go full tilt towards his darkness that even when he sees me opening up a Red Sea and he knows I'm the God of the people that I'm saving, he's going to rush in headlong in his pride and get destroyed. So it does touch on the individual, but that's not his point, is that Pharaoh was doomed from the womb. His point is God knew Pharaoh would be wicked and would do all of these things, and so he raised him up for that purpose because this nation deserved this kind of judgment. And so that's now going to get us into this next scripture where it says, Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. But go to Romans 11.32. Who does he have mercy on? Ultimately, was he ever merciful to Pharaoh or was Pharaoh always rejected from, from, from the time of creation? Go to Romans chapter 11, verse 32. Paul ends this diatribe, this teaching session, with telling us about the mercy of God. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Now, do we go back to being universalists? No, we go back to reading it properly. God did give mercy to Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't start off that hard. Even Jesus takes a little child and says the kingdom of God belongs to them. Uh, 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 even Hitler was once a child. What made Hitler's heart hard over time? Because he kept choosing wickedness and wickedness, and at some point God hands him over to his wickedness. Where did Pharaoh's heart get hard? As God handed him over to his own bad choices. Now, does God know Pharaoh ends up there? Yes. So from the beginning, God goes, I'll use this guy for my own glory, my own purpose. But can Pharaoh now say, well, I'm not guilty. You knew it, and therefore you're responsible. And that's where we're going to go to in Romans now. Go back to Romans chapter 9. God has mercy on all. God was merciful to Pharaoh. He gave him breath to breathe. He gave him a chance to repent, but it was his choice not to repent. Now verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? So it sounds like it's getting personal, right? Like, oh, he's switching to personal things. For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? So we're supposed to say, hey, if God wants to send them to hell, according to the Calvinists, and just let them go to hell. That's whatever God wants to do. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Well, you see right here, I don't have the reference in Jeremiah, but give me the reference there in Jeremiah. I forgot to put it there because that reference comes from Jeremiah, and God is saying the potter has the right to do whatever he wants with that clay. And what does God do justly with that clay? Gives them what they want. God's wanter never overrides their wanter. Now, the Calvinists may say, well, I agree with that, Pastor Joe. God leaves them all in their total depravity, and that's all they ever want is wickedness, so he's fair in judging them. But hold on. If we're only saved by God changing our wanter, then he's just as responsible for not changing their wanter as making the wanter what it is. So if he doesn't change the wanter, he's still responsible because the wanter comes from him. It's like somebody says, well, you know, the, I didn't murder them. The gun did. Well, who pulled the trigger on, on the gun? Okay, um, these are all his own quotes, but uh, can, you, can you give me 
the passage in Jeremiah about. Thank you, Jeremiah 18.5 about the potter and the clay. So it's not a direct reference, uh, but it's an indirect reference. Jeremiah 18.5. Now listen to this. Is th- does this sound like God just randomly is picking his judgment uh, objects, you know, his, his, his clay judgment, saying, well, I'm just going to randomly pick you on and go, you go to hell, you go to heaven. Let's look at it. Jeremiah goes to the potter's house. Let's go in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I'll give my message to you. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, tore down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not afflict on it the disaster I had planned. So does it sound like God is just taking the pot, the pot, uh, the clay rather, just going judgment, blessing, judgment, blessing? No. Things go into judgment piles. Things go into blessing piles. How do they go there? Based on whether or not they repent. What is Paul's purpose in bringing this up? Please swipe back over to Romans 9. He is showing us that God can raise up Egypt and do whatever he wants with Egypt. He can do that with sinners. So it taps on some individuals. They're like us. It's kind of speaking to personal people. Yes, he can do with us whatever he wants, but he is not responsible for us being wicked and falling into judgment. He just knows what we're going to do, and so he'll use us even in the place of judgment. He'll use us for that purpose. Here's what it looks like when I judge somebody. They're now my example. So what is Judas an example of? Somebody who betrays him. Bible said he knew he would do it, so he used him for his glory. He knew Pharaoh would do it, used him for his glory. It's talking about nations. It's going to go right back to Israel. It gets a little personal here, but is it talking about God choosing salvation for people, God choosing whether they're blessed or cursed? No, no, no. He's just saying, just like nations, he can use wicked people for his purpose. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? Who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use. What does that whole passage mean? Does God have the right to judge you and treat you any way he wants? Yes. Does he do it just based on what he wants? No. He does it based on what you decided with what he wants. And so he has the right to do that. You can't resist his will, Pharaoh. I'm deciding now it's going down, and you won't be able to change that. If you repent, you can change what's going to happen. But if you remain in wickedness, you're going to receive that penalty. You make your choice, but not the consequences. Let's keep going. What if God, now here we go. What if God, because he's going to build a point here. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bear with great patience the objects of wrath, prepared for destruction? So is it any secret there's going to be people going to hell? Is it any secret? No. 
What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for his glory? Now watch. Here we go. You ready for the application? It goes right back to nations again. Even us... Whom he has also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. That was his point the whole time. That was his, that's all his point was. He's not going to explain it. You are out of the, the, the shadow of death of Calvinism. Come on. The Lord your God has led you through it. That is all he was trying to talk about the whole time there. Let's just review before we go to the application and just nails the coffin there in Calvinism. And then there's nowhere it's found in 10 and 11. You can't even go there. Watch this. He's telling them, has God forgot about Israel? No. God blessed Israel with all these leaders and all of these amazing scriptures and all of these things. The problem is, is that they've rejected God. And God made a choice, made a choice to still stick with them. He stuck with Isaac. He stuck with uh, Jacob. And these other nations, they went wrong and he rightfully judged them. But he stuck with this people group because that was his choice. But not everybody in that people group is actually saved and right. It's those who do the things for salvation, like have faith and obey his law. Those are the ones who get to be blessed in the journey that God is having with humanity. And there's a person like Pharaoh that represents a nation that can also represent people. That if you go too far in oppressing God's plan for your life, you get handed over to Satan and to your own wickedness, and you get destroyed. And the reason why that's being brought up is because now he's going to turn it on the Jews and basically say, just like he did in the Galatians, you're not the good guys in the story anymore. You're not really Isaac anymore. You're Ishmael. You're not really Jacob anymore. You're now acting like Esau. You're really not like the Israelites in the Pharaoh story and in the Egypt story. You're really like Egypt now. Let's see if he goes there. Because he's going to say God's bringing in these Gentiles. So he says, as it says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there you will be called the children of the living God. And so right here, a black Hebrew Israelite might point out to you that that prophetic word in Hosea is actually speaking to Israelites who were called not his people anymore. And then he goes back and he says, my people. So they'll try to say the Gentiles were winning are actually Israelites who converted to Gentile he uh, uh, paganism and now we're winning them back. So the plan of salvation is only for Hebrews. That's what they'll try to use the context of that. But no, 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 Paul's not using it that way. What Paul is doing, just like he did before, is he is saying, just like how God said to you guys before, you weren't his people, and then he made you his people, that's what he's now doing to the Gentiles, who he said, you weren't my people now I'm calling you my people. So if you as Jews don't like him calling non-Jews his people, remember at one time you weren't called his people. But he went back and was merciful to you and called you his people. Does everybody get that? That's so deep. you got to track with where he's using the prophets there. It's in context. It's just like with the Hagar example and, and, and the two mountains in Galatians. It's like the Jewish people become the bad guys. But it's like, hold on, they are the children of Sarah, not of Hagar. But you got to see how he's flipping it around. He's showing them by doing it that way, you're actually doing the wrong thing, the works of the law. 
Verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have been like Sodom, Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. So once again, why is God letting these people continue on and having mercy on this remnant. Why doesn't he destroy them all? That's his choice. Just like he could have let Sodom and Gomorrah go on further, and possibly more Sodomites might have become Christians or, or followers of God. He decided, your time is up. With Israel, he gave them second and third and fourth chances and allowed them to repent through the, the prophets and the law being preached, etc. That was his choice. Can anybody argue with that? So once again, why is he saying that? Because he's saying, if you guys don't like that now as Jews, that the Gentiles are coming in, remember, if it wasn't for God, you would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Come on, somebody. Here it concludes. What shall we say then? What is the purpose we're supposed to get out of this? Let him conclude it. Does verse 30 and onward have anything to do with Calvinism or even big picture soteriology? No, it has nothing to do with it. It literally has to do with big picture uh, Gentile and Jews being saved. That's it. God's choice to save nation has nothing to do with how individuals are saved and how some go to heaven, some go to hell, and had nothing to do with it. He will conclude his own point. Let Paul speak. What then shall we say to everything he started from verse 1 when he says, I speak the truth in, in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I would wish myself cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. Guess what? If you're, not a, if you're a Calvinist, you love people more than God does. Because Paul loved them enough to want them all to be saved, and God is purposely damning them, not wanting all to be saved. Isn't that crazy? You actually have a greater desire than the God of Calvinism. we got to be careful when we say that because we believe they serve the right God. But we should say the way they portray God. Paul is literally saying if there was more I could do for them to be saved, I would do it. Because God does want them all to be saved, but there's nothing I can do. What, and, and if you get to chapter 11, what are they really wrestling with is their own choice, their own faith. And God's you know, lack of faith or unbelief, God's not going to force it on them. So let's go to verse 30. What shall I say? What then shall we say? That the Gentiles, right back to nations where it's always been, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. A righteousness that is by what? Faith. But the people of Israel, let's see, now there's the nation there. Everything was just about two nations, that's all it was, who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not obtained the goal. So you see faith versus works of the law. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were by works. Who chose for them? Who chose for them not to be saved? Was it God's choice alone or was it God's choice to give them a choice and they made the wrong one? It was their choice, wasn't it? Look at it. It says, why aren't they saved? Because they pursued it not by faith. That was their choice. They did not pursue it by faith. They did it by works. So God was sovereign to give them a choice. If God didn't want us to have a choice, the Bible wouldn't be written the way it is. And we wouldn't know we didn't have a choice because a robot doesn't know it doesn't have a choice. God is simply giving us, through Paul, 
the great revelation of why now Jews and Gentiles are both saved by faith and why Gentiles at a time were not included into the great covenant of God. They could come in, but they weren't the ones that God chose to bring it through. They were not the nation God chose. He had to choose a nation, he chose one. He had to choose a twin, he chose one. But now everybody is chosen to be saved the same exact way. And it says, why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, look at verse 33. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So does God put out the rock that makes them fall? Absolutely. He said Christ is going to be the reason why you stand or fall. But do they have to fall? Absolutely not. Only ones that will fall are those who choose to follow works, not faith. Because if you believe, if you believe in him, that's your choice. Remember we learned about that. That was Abraham's choice. You do this, you will never be put to shame. And if they go back to us and go, work, work, work. You see, you're saying somebody's doing a work. We go, no, go back to the other chapters, four and five. Faith is not a work. But is it credited to us? Yes, it is. There's a reason why some go to heaven and some go to hell. There's a reason why God chose Israel as a nation versus the other nations. It is God's choice and then our choice. God's choice and our choice. Even the Edomites did not have to be judged the way they were. They could have been a different kind of nation. Egypt could have been a different kind of nation. But they didn't make those choices. And so God knew the kind of nations and people they would be. And he used them for his own wrath and his own purposes. Just like he used people to crucify Jesus. He did all of these things for his own good. Even like Joseph going into slavery. He uses the evil for the good. But he is not the author of evil. In Calvinism, there's no way to get away from God being the author of the actual evil. He's redeeming his own evil. The brother sold Joseph into slavery because God made him sold him into slavery. He put it in their heart. But according to us, God knew they would be so wicked, but he spared them. Uh, he spared Joseph through that process to show that he's a better chess player than the devil and all the free will, evil decisions of free will agents. I hope you saw that in Romans chapter 9. Because as we go to Romans chapter 10, we're going to clearly see that the whole purpose of the book of Romans is to give the Israelites and Jew the same gospel for all to be saved and for us as Gentiles to be grafted into Israel in Romans chapter 11 because he still has a plan for them. Even though they've been so bad, he hasn't forsaken them. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for this awesome time together in Romans chapter 9. We pray for our Calvinist brothers. We're not smarter or better than them. We're just listening to the word without a, a system that makes it difficult to... Um, or incorrect to understand the scriptures. So help us all to humble ourselves and grow more in our knowledge and understanding. Help us not to put systems upon the scripture that don't belong there. And to simply learn from Romans chapter 9 that you are sovereign. You are in control of nations. You are in control of how everything pans out. And yet at the same time, you give us a choice. Choices that we'll be responsible for. That our nation will be responsible for. And so Lord, may we be uh, like the Jewish people who loved you and served you in the past. And may we uh, follow their example 
and be the kind of Gentiles that are grateful to be grafted into the Jewish people via faith to the Jewish Messiah who we will rule and reign with in Jerusalem for a thousand years and then forever be with him upon the new heavens and new earth. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.